Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You have to be aware of the moment. This was, this was my moment where the five is showing and I got two aces. I got to split the aces. I got to go for it. This is the moment. This is where you win, win it all or lose it all. Octavio Samuels, and welcome to The Black Print, where I sit with the innovators, disruptors, and change makers. My guests open up about every step of their journey and share lessons learned along the way to provide creators, entrepreneurs, and executives with a tangible blueprint for navigating to the top of their industry. This is The Black Print. Welcome to the Black Print. Here you know my favorite quote is, everybody sees you on the mountaintop, everybody doesn't see you on the climb. This is the show where we get to talk to the ceiling breakers, the disruptors, the innovators, and we get to learn about the climb. Today I'm super excited to be here with my big brother, Kareem Cook. Um, it's a special episode and I think you'll see um, why it's special. Kareem and I have had relationships since, you know, for 20 years plus now at this point in time. So grateful for you to be here, King. I always ask people, introduce yourself as a way of starting off the episode. Tell the people who you are, brother. Thank you, bro. And uh, thank you for inviting me on the show, man. Yeah, of course. I mean, it means a lot. And, um, you know, I have seen your climb. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm very proud of you and thank what you've you, accomplished bro. and what you're doing. Um, so my name is Kareem Cook. Uh, I own a com- I co-own a company called NatureAid, uh, along with Claude Tellis. Um, have some notable investors, including Grand Hill and Magic Johnson, um, a few others. And our mission is really to reverse the diet-related illnesses trends that disproportionately affect underserved communities. Mm-hmm. And so we sell plant-based meal replacements, weight loss shakes, gut health products. And what we were able to do as a company is really break through the ceiling and, and get into distribution that's been reserved for a billion dollar you know, uh, companies that you know, we never have access to these. So we're in Costco, for instance, you know, Target and, and uh, Whole Foods for a little while. And and and, um, and the stories and how we got there are really remarkable. I mean, we really had to fight to get there. So we're going to get to that story, but we're going to start. So we're starting at the top of the mountain. Co-owner of Nature Aid, Claude Tellis, who we mentioned, is also, you know, one of my, my big brothers. So, again, it's all family. Um, let's take it all the way back to the beginning, to the Bronx. Um, tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up for you. Uh, so I grew up in the Bronx. You know, uh, my mom, I grew up with a single mom, um, and we lived all over the Bronx for a while, but eventually settled in Parkchester. That's what I represent. Um, Got there in kindergarten and stayed through through high school. Um, and uh, I, what changed my life was a program called Prepper Prep. I took a test, um, ended up getting a scholarship to a private school. And for me, um, it, it, it took me off the path I was on to put me on a different path. Showed me um, the possibilities of a world uh, that I had never seen. And But luckily for me, the difference between other people like me who were smart, um, I didn't have to pretend I wasn't smart in my neighborhood. My neighborhood embraced me. Mm-hmm. And I think I told you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. one of the defining moments when, uh, you know, so I grew up in Parkchester, 196 buildings, 12 stories, nine stories. Each floor has eight apartments. So you know how many wild kids live there. And Halloween is like fight night. It'd be like a hundred wild dudes walking around. Every neighborhood, same thing. And 
we get into these brawls, right? And so one year, this one particular year, um, you know, they were like, oh, they're robbing people down by Macy's and all, everybody mobs down there. It's just other projects down there. They're rumbling and a few of them run into my neighborhood and they catch them, right? And it's like six of them. It, but they're five percenters, and there's some five percenters in my neighborhood, you know, they talking that God talk. Yo, God, yo, son, how you robbing all the, yo, son, you, you know. And me and my friend, we just sitting there on the car just kind of watching. That's not mm. our thing, right? Um, and they, you know, they decide that they're just going to rough them up a little bit, let them go. But one of the kids takes off running. And I'm sitting there in the car, and I'm looking, and all of a sudden he runs by me. And I get up just instinctively, and I start chasing him. Mm. And right as I'm about to grab him, somebody grabs me by my, by my shoulders, lays me on the ground and lifts me back up. Mm. And I turn around and it's uh, uh, one of my big bros, Omar. He's like, yo, Ring, yo, what you doing, man? That's not you, man. That's, that's not, this is not for you. And that moment was so impactful. Like I always remember, I ran to him a few years ago and I mm. thanked him. I was like, you know what? This is not for me, man. Like, what am I doing? Um, and so my neighborhood embraced me, you know, and they protected me. And a lot of people, you know, shout out to Ben and, and, and Kevin Floyd and people like that to just, just protected me from the other things that would have derailed me. They made sure it didn't happen for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How old were you when you got into prep for prep? So like when you make this transition, like I could have gone one way, but prep for prep enabled me to go a different way. What, how old were you? So I was, in, I was in fifth grade when I took the test. And it's like, uh -huh. you know, a thousand Early. kids in New York and they accept about 70. And um, in the sixth grade, in the summer of fifth grade, go to summer school, it's like, like the rats and them, if you ever read that book. Um, and then, in sixth grade, you're still in public school, but Wednesday nights and Saturdays, you go downtown and you know, you're know doing like 10th grade work in like sixth grade, eighth grade work. Um, the next summer, you're still in the program, but then you get a scholarship to like the elite private schools in New York. And for us, and, you know, and it bonded us, it's like sort of pledging, like we, we went through this thing, but when we got to the schools, it's all black, brown, Asian kids getting to these private schools. For us, you know, we, we just cruise controlled the ninth grade because we had already done the work. Mm. And so you just very, very, very prepared and, and it sets you on the right track and it's a hugely successful program. Um, but that's when, that's how I got into the nose. And how old were you when Omar slams you on the ground <laughs> and then lifts you back up and says, nah, brother, nah, King, the same for you. How old are you? I probably was about 15. Okay. Because my thing was, and I, I am who I am, man. I'm just really authentic. And I always kept one foot in the Bronx and one foot in the private school. I never really, you know, I couldn't do the whole, you know, I was just, I just added it to me. I didn't take, I didn't become somebody else. I just mm -hmm. added that as another layer of who I was. And so, um, and so I just, you know, like I would bring my friends from the Bronx to like Manhattan to meet these kids. Sometimes I would take, my mom was president of NAACP in my section of the Bronx and she would do these plays. And she'd be like, see if one of some of your white friends from school want to come be in this play. You know, and so they would hop on a train and get off at Park Chest and they'd be met by me and, and like 10 of my friends and we walk through the neighborhood and they'd be looking around like, yo, what's going on here? You know, and then we do the play and put them back on the train. Um, and so I just tried to bring everybody together, mm -hmm. you know, and. So prep for prep sounds like it was game changing. <clears throat> this moment with Omar sounds like it's um, a pretty pivotal moment. How do you remember how you felt? Um, being slammed on the ground in front of people in your neighborhood and then pick, do you remember what that moment felt like? Did, were you grateful that someone was protecting you? Were you embarrassed? Like, do you remember how that moment felt? Oh, yeah, yeah, I was embarrassed. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because, nah, y'all supposed to be beating them up. Why am I getting beat up? There's a hundred of us, right? Um, and I, re you know, I realized it was, you know, he was like two years older than me. He was just like, come on, man. Yeah. And it was embarrassing, but 
it was also illuminating because I thought about it later and through my embarrassment, once that went away, I was like, you know what? He's right, man. And, and, and then I looked at other moments in my life where, you know, just people just stepped up and was like, nah, this is not gonna happen to him. Or they'd be like, yo, Reem, you're trying to go upstairs, you know, because I wanted to rule CeeLo and I, I played ball. I was, everybody just accepted me. Not everybody knew that I had this other life, you know, um, but, but the right people knew. Mm. And what they did was protect me from those elements, you know, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it reminds me of like, um, you know, words we used to say back in the days, like it takes a village, right? And you actually had a village helping you to get to where you are today. All right, so from prep from prep, um, you end up going to Duke University, right? So mm -hmm. both of us went to Duke University. Um, what, what was your experience at Duke like? So, you know, first of all, Duke was in the South and I didn't, um, you know, I was a little nervous about that. You know, I'm from New York, so and I'm I. like, oh, man, you know, it's the South. You know, I'm thinking it's the KKK. Yes, I am. Right? You know, but you get down there and you realize, you know, it's, it's one, that whole perception I had was wrong, right? I mean, that's not, I mean, look, there's elements of it everywhere. But, um, but um, you know, Durham was uh, just a great city, and the campus of Duke was great, and the people were, were friendly and welcoming. So um, I went down there, and... I went down there with a lot of confidence. And so Duke was a great, a great experience for me because I was able to, um, you know, branch out, meet a lot of people and sort of, I started learning the game of why you go to a school like Duke kind of early on. I started so what's, to understand. What's that? Why should people consider going to a school like Duke? So, you know, the people that, I, so I'm, I'm on the alumni board. I've been president of the Duke Club in LA. I'm, I'm big Duke and so people hate to hear me say this, but the education you get there, you know, sure, it's, it's better than most schools, but, um, you know, you're not really going for the education. What you're going for is the network, right? What you're going for is the access that it will give you. And if you take advantage, if you understand that in the moment and you take advantage of it while it's happening, then it'll, it'll pay you for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, that's why you pay all the money to go there. You know, I majored in political science and I could have gone to. I could have gone to SUNY Stony Brook and read the same books and got the same education, yeah. right? But I, but it was just more than that for me, yeah. right? And so they don't they don't like to hear me say that. Like, yo, shut up, shut up. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, now, nah, but I feel the same way. Like, I missed it at Duke. Like, I didn't leave Duke with any white friends. My whole network, my whole everything was was black. But when I went to business school and I went to Stanford, I was like, I'm gonna do it differently. And um, without question, like, I can remember going into interviews. You know, I went to Stanford two years out of school. I knew nothing. I had been working at a career management center. Um, I'm sitting in front of like investment bankers and they're looking at my resume that says Duke and it says Stanford and they're saying to me, clearly you can do the job. We just need to see if you're a fit. Clearly I couldn't do the job. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't know, but the school was such a great symbol and the network that got me into those doors. I think that's such a game changer that people don't often understand. I think you'll find MBAs who um, you get a much better MBA education than, than, than if, you, if you went to Stanford, right? Um, I think people like, uh, like if you go to Darden, like them Darden folks, like they put you to work. Oh, yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Like they didn't put us to work like that at Stanford, but what we left with was the network. What we left with was the symbol. And I think that that thing- is and, and it builds your confidence, right? Cause you there with, with you know, the people who, That's the leaders right. of tomorrow and y'all are battling and you're like, this is not any smarter than me. And I'm getting better grades and I'm, I can compete at the highest levels and I'm winning at that. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. 
So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right, so you walk out of there just feeling like, I did what I had to do here, I'm ready for what's next. And not only that, you know, because, and I played the game, you speak about business school, I went back to Duke for business school. I realized in undergrad, I had certain things happen. Like there were certain things in, that just, you know, we, you know, we, we, I, you know, my favorite word is providence, yeah, right? Gonna, we're gonna get there. Yeah, and there's certain things that happen. And I, I, I'll go back to it since you're gonna get to it. But certain things have happened where, you know, I realized when I went to business school that there were certain things I didn't do in undergrad, and I wrote those things down. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, oh, I didn't have a leadership position. Oh, I didn't, I didn't feel like I knew a lot of kids uh, of the students, but I didn't know any, any, um, any administrators, like the head of school. Like they didn't know me when I graduated, and I can't leave the door open for others and, and usher other people through, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I intentionally did that when I went back to business school. And so, um, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. I, um, <clears throat> you know, there was a, there were a group of people at Duke, white kids that just seemed like they always had the right answer, right? Not, not skull and bones, that's all made up and stuff, but, you know, but they were in a group and like they had tests that had been passed down from year and year. And, and I knew it was happening, but I didn't really care. I was like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm good with my, mm-hmm. my grade here. I don't need to be a part. I'm not going to be a part of it. At business school, I was like, the same thing's going to happen. I'm not going to be invited into that fraternity, but I'm going to pay attention this time, and I'm going to do what they do. And so one of the things that happened was, um, you know, they, they signed up for this group called the Executive Fellows. And, um, and one of my big brothers told me to do it, too. And I saw them doing it. And I was like, all right, let's do it. Me and my roommate Tony, like, yo, Tony, let's we signed up, we interviewed, not really even knowing what it was, but we got in and then we realized what it was, was um, it was this group of, kid, uh, of students, they planned the Distinguished Speaker Series, like the CEOs of Sony and Goldman Sachs and all these places come and they planned it. So the whole school, they, they, these people will speak to the school at 10, but the eight of y'all have breakfast with them, right? Mm. All this is an opportunity to network with these high powered you know, leaders of the world. And so, and then they have like a trustee meeting twice a year and you're assigned a limo to go pick up a guy, right? Mm-hmm. Pick up one of these CEOs. And my guy was the CEO of then Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. And he was also the executive chairman of the, the trustee board. And we got in the car and he's like, man, how did the guy from, like you was talking, he's like, how does a guy from the Bronx navigate his way through and, and get to the business school? And I said, well, I was in a program called Prepper Prep. And he's like, Prepper Prep? He's like, I actually invested in that, mm-hmm. that program. He's like, you're like the walk-in manifestation of my investment, right? And he was like, yo, you know, and then we just instantly bonded. It takes 20 minutes to get a dude. I took the hour driving real slow, <laughs> right? And he was like, you and your family need to come over to my house for Thanksgiving next week. Bring everybody, right? I mean, by the end of the, the trip, and, you know, in my mind, I was like, I don't think you understand what he's asking for, like, my family gonna come with shopping carts and Tupperware. His wife gonna be like, "Why are they taking all the food out?" <laughs> but um, so I went Friday. <laughs> Thanks by myself. And look, when I ended up raising money, he was the first person to cut a check. Mm. When we bought the company Nature Ray, he wrote a check. We raised some more capital. You know, two years ago, he cut another check. This dude's been investing in me for the last 22 years. Mm. And that's how you play the game. Mm. And that's why you do it, right? And if you're not smart enough in the moment to take advantage of those moments when it happens. Life is a game of blackjack. Like blackjack is sometimes you win, sometimes a dealer wins. Sometimes you win, sometimes a dealer wins. But when you get those moments where that five is showing and you have, you can split the aces, those are the moments where you just go for it hard. Cause that's when you, that's gonna determine whether you win or lose. 
And you got to know those moments in life. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, okay, so we're going to go back a little bit. Um, Pre-business school. So what did you do when you immediately left Duke? What was, what was your first real big job after Duke? So my first job was I was working for a black-owned accounting firm in D.C. Um, and, uh, and then I switched over to uh, I was working for an insurance company. And, uh, and I knew I wanted to go back to business school. And the insurance company kind of presented itself as a financial company where I'd be selling like financial tools, but really it was insurance. And it was a hundred percent commission, which I didn't really understand how bad of a decision that was. Right. I was like, <laughs> no base. hundred percent commission. Yeah. I would meet people. It's like, yeah, I make, you know, I make 150, I make 200,000. It's like, what? Yeah. So yeah, I could beat these cats. Right. So, yeah. but I didn't know that hundred percent commission meant that the first week you was making zero dollars. <laughs> You know, so that's, I was working those two jobs to start off. Okay. And um, what causes you, because I know a little bit of your story. So you end up leaving the insurance company. Why do you leave the insurance company? Man, this actually, this decision was um, really set the stage for everything else for my life to this point. Um, so I realized that they were trying, they, they were encouraging us to use some methods to sell it that, didn't jive with my spirit. Like mm. it would teach us how to take advantage of people. And I just, and I went out one day with my boss and you know, it was a woman and her, <clears throat> it's a black woman with her kids. And, and I said to myself, she can't afford insurance. And even this, this, um, you know, um, the, the type of insurance that, that starts off $25 a month, but eventually she'll be paying 200. She going to lose it. Then I was like, you know what? It's not really for you right now. I'm gonna come back and see you in a couple of years. And my boss and I got into a fight and I was like, man, forget it. I'm not selling the insurance then. I'm gonna sell mutual funds and annuities because people who buy those, you know, they take it or leave it. Mm. <clears throat> so my check went from like $800 a week to 400 to 200. Mm. I was making like $15 a week and I was maxing out, I was paying my rent on credit cards, but I was so, I was like, I'm gonna win, man. I ain't gonna let these, they ain't not gonna beat me. Mm. Um, and I didn't realize I was working like 17 hours a day. So while I go in my office one day and I see my marketing assistant, I'm like, hey, you look, uh, you look, down, let me, let me take you to lunch today. And she's like, nah, but I appreciate it. I'm like, you sure? Cause this credit card, I'm gonna max this joint out and I ain't paying them back. So we might as well go have a good time, right? And she's like, nah, 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 you know. The next week we have this company wide meeting and she goes, <clears throat> listen, you guys, the whole company, you guys talk about how you care about each other, but I think you're all hypocrites. The only person that uh, I want to thank is Kareem Cook because the day that I found out that I had terminal stomach cancer mm. and I was stage four and there was nothing anybody could do about it. He's the only one that noticed. So thank you, but everybody else. And I just, I lost it. It was a Friday. I just broke down. I just got up, packed my desk, went, my desk went to my boss and I was like, look, no need to give you two weeks notice. Cause he's like, nope, shook hands. I was gone. I slept like 18 hours, mm. right? Woke up Saturday, did a few things, slept again, went to sleep again. And I wake up Sunday and I get a call from Debbie Allen. Right, who I never Debbie met. Allen. Lee Debbie Allen, mm -hmm. who I never met, but her brother was a fraternity brother of ours in, in grad school when I was an undergrad, and she was like, you know, my brother's always saying like you the best stepper, dancer, and all this stuff. You know, what you uh, can you can you uh, come to New York and show me some things? And I'm like, yo, Debbie, I I quit my job Friday. Yeah, I can come. I was living in D.C. I was like, yeah. So I, Monday morning, I get in the car, drive up to D.C. I get there at ten. She's like, I right, see what you could do. I'm doing my thing or whatever got the cane or whatever. And she's like, oh, wow, you got to show Michael when he comes. And I'm like, Michael? She's like, yeah, this, I'm choreographer for a Michael Jackson concert. Mm -hmm. I didn't tell you. I was like, no, nah, you didn't tell him. Right? So, so 2 o'clock comes. Michael Jackson comes in the room. 
you know, he got the smooth criminal hat, got the mask, <laughs> right? That was funny back then, but now everybody got it, right? Um, <clears throat> comes in with his entourage. He's like, all right, let's see what you could do, right? And so I'm talking big smack now because, you know, we talked about, there are two things I knew since I was a kid, when I was like five or six years old. I knew I was going to meet Michael Jackson, mm. and I knew I was going to be a wheel of fortune. <laughs> and when those two things happened in my life, like I had like a supernatural calmness about me. Like I've I seen this moment my whole life. Mm. I've been here already. Mm. And Debbie's like, all right, baby, he's just a man. I was like, Debbie, I didn't do this thing I'm about to do here in front of 2,000 people. There's only 10 people in this room. I got this. So, you know, I do my thing. And he's like, wow, that's like Gene Kelly, like for the stage. You think you could, think you could choreograph a routine to my song, Bad, doing that stuff what you was just doing? I was like, yeah. So Debbie's like, all right, baby, you choreographer now, baby. You a chore. Go back and get your stuff. She gave me like $75. She's like, go back now. I was like, $75? Yeah, you know, this is more money than I made. Yeah, last two choreographer months. for Michael Jackson. So anyway, so so y'all do that. Long story short, um, the, the concert never happens, but I end up developing a relationship with him and Debbie that paid dividends going forward. Opportunity is not equally distributed. To every black entrepreneur listening, I want to make sure you have the tools and resources you need to grab your next opportunity. That's why I'm telling you about the One Million Black Businesses Initiative. The One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale One Million Black Businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field. From free business coaching to tailored training and an extended free Shopify trial. Shopify has made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The one million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Chart your own path for business success with the One Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash blackprint, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash blackprint. Mm -hmm. um, so you end up getting from choreographing for Michael Jackson to Duke Business School. Um, what, what, what drove the decision to go to business school? Like a lot of times I meet people and they're trying to figure out, should I get my MBA? Should I not? Like, why did you decide that it was important for you to get your MBA? So for me, you know, I kind of felt like I was floating for a while. Like I was just off my square and I don't like that feeling. Mm -hmm. But what I knew was if I go back to and get my MBA, it's sort of like an insurance plan. Like I can get a job making good money if I come out of there with a, with a, with a degree. I don't know exactly what I want to do yet. And so I got in to the business school as I was doing the Michael Jackson stuff. And I was like, hold up, because I might not even want to go back to school if this works out. And I, I deferred for two years, but I ended up going back. And really, that was it. And I said, you know, I need to learn some skills. Like, I need to understand, you know, finance and operations and marketing. I need to really learn, develop a skill set if I'm going to even run my own business or just be in business. 
And so that, I made that decision then. Mm -hmm. um, I know one of your favorite words is providence, so I'm gonna ask you to define it because we're about to get into a moment um, that to me is very providential in terms of our relationship, right? So um, what is the word providence and why are you so in love with it? Like, why, what is your attraction to that word? So that word providence is my favorite word, right? Um, and I remember watching the Matrix um, Revolutions. Revolutions. And in this one scene, it's like the machines are coming to Zion, they're gonna destroy this inevitable. And everybody's going crazy. And Morpheus is watching everybody go crazy. And then he just stops everyone. He says, look, all of our lives we have fought this war. Tonight I think we can end it. He's like, tonight is not an accident. I don't believe in accidents. I don't believe in chance. We are not here by chance. When I see three objectives, three captains, three ships, I see providence. I see purpose. He said, tonight, he said, T today is our destiny, and tonight's gonna reveal the very meanings of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I walked out of there like, man, I was, I was deep. I was like, but I don't, what's that? I keep hearing this word providence, but I don't really know, but it was so perfect. And I looked it up, and providence is divine purpose, like path mm -hmm. set before you by God. And that word was so, at that moment, you know, I felt like, man, there's been so much providence in my life. So, you know, being off my square is, is understanding I'm not on my divine path, right? And those are the moments I feel the most uncomfortable in life. And, and it just, it just sunk in with me, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I went and, and printed out and put, you know, Claude Tellis and myself had a picture of us in the office, big frame, had providence, had the definition. And, um, and really it's, it's guided my life. Like if I feel like any decision I'm about to make, if it's not jive my spirit, like the decision to leave the insurance company, my spirit was like, nah, this is not it. And if I hadn't quit Friday, I wouldn't have been able to do the Michael Jackson thing Monday, right? Um, I got arrested when I was an undergrad, right? Hanging out with my friends in, um, on Franklin Street in, mm. in Carolina. And, and I turned around to my boy, I was like, man, I'll dunk on you. And I, just, and I just jumped up and I was like, I'll dunk on you like this. And I grabbed the owner of a pizza shop, just showing them. I, was, I didn't realize the cops had been following us around all night. They ran up, threw me on the ground and arrested me. And I was like, what am I being arrested for? Um, it's like wantonly destruction of property is what I got charged with, right? And the pizza shop owner was like, what did he destroy? But mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I'll take a little money. Um, and I ended up meeting the vice president. And at this time, Skip Gates, who's now, he's really big at Harvard, but for a year, he came to Duke and started African-American um, yeah, studies remember. program. Yep. He brought a guy named... Um, John Hope Franklin? No, nah, but he, he brought his lieutenant, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he, he became the, the vice provost. And I got to meet with him. I told him what happened. He was like, what? And you know, look, him and Skip Gates came to Duke looking for some good trouble. Yeah. So, yeah, right, we got our thing now, right? So I show up in court and the vice president of Duke is with me. Uh, Leonard Beckham is his name. Mm. And the vice president of Duke is with me. And the judge is like, I just don't understand what the vice president of Duke University is in my little courtroom about this small misdemeanor. He's like, because no kid from Duke is going to face any you know, um, prejudice and discrimination, and I'm here to make sure it's not going to happen. He's like, I'm only going to give him like 20 hours of, mm. of community service. He's going to do that in my office, and you know. So I ended up working for this guy in his office. We became close. He wrote my recommendation for business school, helped me get my first job. Mm. And so all these things, bad things happen, and then in those moments, you're like, oh, this is happening for a reason. Let me look around and see what the reason is and make sure that I have the hands out so I can grab what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And so that was the blessing. It was mm -hmm. just like 
from this bad thing happening, incredible blessing. I would have never had these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Providence. So I don't know that I knew that you deferred business school for two years. I don't know if that's new information for me or not. But in deferring business school for two years, you and I end up at Duke at the same time, right? So I got to Duke in 98, graduated in 02, pledged in 99. You were at business school, what, 98 to 2000? 2000. Okay, yeah, so you're in business school. So I have the pleasure of seeing you on most nights as I am a freshman. <laughs> um, uh, joining this incredible fraternity and chapter that we have. And um, if you fast forward, uh, my senior year, I had like a major, major moment. Um, second semester senior year. Usually when I talk about second semester senior year, I talk about like that's the year I discovered marketing and I discovered that I wanted to be a CMO and that's a story that I tell. Um, but at the same time as I'm finally finding like this thing that sets my soul on fire, like we, I get in a massive fight, right? So um, what we don't talk about is uh, when I was pledged into the fraternity, it was a bunch of big dudes running around bullying people is what I feel like, right? Once they leave, which is literally that, you know, I'm a freshman, they leave that next year or that, that same year, it's my line and we're a much smaller line. And I felt like all the frats, all the people who felt like they had been bullied for all the years were like <laughs> all coming at us, right? So we used to fight like every weekend, right? So second semester, senior year, we get in this massive fight Kappas versus Alphas. I've never seen anything like this, you know, black men fighting all over the school. Um, I was at the beginning of the fight, right? So um, I'll never forget me and my man Stoney walking through the party, trying to be fly, thinking we look good. Uh, and we he bumps into these like young men. And then like one of them immediately start popping. I'm like, man, we're not trying to fight. Like I get his boy, I'm like, yo, get your boy. We're not really trying to fight. Boom, he start popping. I'm like, all right. I look at his boy and I'm like, yo, get your man. Like we're not really trying to fight. He start popping. Now it's three against two. So me and Stoney start popping off, right? Um, I'll never forget. It's the normal like pushing, shoving, all of that stuff. As the cops come to pull me away, dude reaches across and like, graces my face with his fingers and I flipped out and all I remember is like they taking me out of the great hall and like I had just pledged the line so infinity was was young on the yard and everybody's like yo what is going on with Detavio that's making him react like that anyways they then go check the people who they saw me get into a fight with and I'm in this massive fight explodes um the headline is it's a massive fight on Duke's campus and Detavio is the face of it all, I'm the front of it all. And um, I then ended up having a fight for my life on two different levels. Um, one was I was fighting with the city of Durham who had hit me with, I don't remember if they were mis misdemeanors or felonies, but inciting a riot, failure to disperse, um, resisting arrest, right? Like I got hit with a whole bunch of other things. Um, and then I also had to fight for my life at Duke. It was second semester senior year and like they were trying to suspend me or expel me or whatever they were going to do. Um, and I did not get expelled or suspended. And a big piece of that is because you jumped in and intervened. And so um, for that, I am forever grateful. Um, I'm sharing my part of the story, but I'm gonna ask you to share your part of the story. So what you hear and what you know is, Detavio, who you helped bring into the chapter in 1999, is literally fighting for my life as I'm trying to get out of school and trying to get out of Duke University. Um, for the people, just help them explain, like, what role did you play? Uh, yeah, man. So 
Don't advocate fighting. <laughs> um, we were always fighting. Was, the rule was like we was never gonna start it, but we was always gonna finish it. Yeah, right? I did. Yeah, I did. We call it the creatine era. <laughs> um, but um, the thing was, I got a call and they were like, "Yeah, Octavio's got some serious charges, and he's, you know, there's a cop that's gonna testify, and it's all lean on what this cop says, and you know." They Tommy might get expelled before he gets his degree. And I was like, what? I said, well, that ain't happening. Um, found out who he was, realized he was a police officer that was there when I was on campus. And he he did all the security for all our parties. So I just, and I hopped on, I, I called ahead of time and I hopped on a plane and met him outside of uh, the Bryant Center. And I was like, listen, man. I said, I know Tavio, you know. Uh, Tavio back then, you know, he, he pops off like he said. and you know, I'm sure if he was excited, he probably said some crazy things to you that you don't want to hear. I curse every but, police officer out. But what you don't understand is he's a black man and he has a destiny ahead of him that he's worked hard for this moment and you caught him at the worst moment in his life. And right now, you're standing between him and graduating and getting everything that he and his family and his forefathers and himself work to get to it and you're standing in the gap you know the question is do you want do you want that does that what you want is to stop this man from getting what he was put here to get when something happens to your kitchen you might say this is ludicrous but that won't fix your home that will only get you the rapper ludicrous having trouble don't panic don't be alarmed you need to file a claim holla at state farm like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. And he talked, we thought about it, and I said, look, man, I mean, you're going to stop a black man from graduating from getting his degree. And ultimately, he agreed, and then he went in. You know, he lightened his approach and got your degree, and you graduated. But, uh it's funny you didn't know that I had we had that conversation until only a few years ago. But uh, but it was you know it was important, man. I mean, part of the reason we do what we do, and just want to say that fights between fraternities that's very not typical. And in fact, I think those guys weren't that they weren't Duke they students, weren't, they right? Were, they, they were from Charlotte. They from somewhere Charlotte. else, mm-hmm. right? We didn't we didn't fight each other at Duke. You know, we understood um, the need for community, especially in the black community. Um, but. What, what, what was important there was tr- was the tribe, you know, um, and we tribe. And I think that, you know, you can't get anywhere. You know, how to, you know, look, overused proverb at this point, but you know, you want to go fast, go alone. We want to go far, go together. And I think that whenever you have an opportunity to help people, especially in your tribe, and it doesn't cost you anything, then you have a duty to do it. You know, I mean, I was like, I heard the story like a hundred people heard the story, mm-hmm. but I realized. I was in a position to actually do something about it. And so I did it. And it really was nothing for me. That's why we never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just what I was supposed to do. And I think that that's just, in the grand scheme, we need to do that more for each other, period. Yeah, look, I'm grateful. Um, there's a world, again, you talk about this word, providence. If you, do, um, if you don't take the two years deferral in terms of going to Fuqua School of Business, then you're not there when I'm going through my pledge process and I'm a freshman on campus. We're not there at the same time, and so then we don't build the same relationship. And so there's a world where I get into this fight that literally could be the reason why I'm not here today, 
Um, and if you don't get that deferral and we don't build that relationship and you don't intervene, um, then I might not be sitting in the seat that I'm in sitting in today. So I'm eternally grateful for you, great um, big bro. Um, yeah, special moment for me. Uh, so thank you for that. Okay, and at the same time, like, um, I mean, we were wild at that time. My roommate, he had felonies and misdemeanors. Like, <laughs> what kind of pick you trying to paint right yeah. now, bro? You know, just, people look at, the, people look at Duke and it. think it's just a, a corny people down nah, there. Nah, but you know, like, and I was talking to you about this the other day. It's like, um, I don't believe that it should take what it took for me to be successful for black people to be successful. You shouldn't have to go to Duke and to Stanford and do global marketing. You shouldn't have to have big brothers intervene and save you from you know, whatever course they're gonna try to put me on it's from a, um, expelling me from school or whatever was gonna happen um, from Durham County standpoint. It shouldn't take all of that in order for us to be successful. You know what I mean? And so, um, again, I'm grateful, but I'm also fighting for um, a future where young black kids don't have to do, don't have to be perfect and don't have to be saved by their tribe in order to be successful or achieve. Okay, so moving past Fuqua, um, what, what's next for you after Fuqua? What do you end up doing? after you leave business school? So Claude Tellis and I decided to be business partners and forego job opportunities. We want to be entrepreneurs, we own our own company. Um, we did. We were in Houston for a couple of years, but what happened was the Debbie Allen story continued after Michael Jackson, right? I ended up moving back to DC. Debbie Allen calls me up and she's like, hey, you know, I'm working on a play at the Kennedy Center and I'm always doing this play. They commissioned me to do a play every year. And um, James Ingram is, is helping me write it and sing, he's starring in it. I'm starring in it. There's a guy named Lacey Darren Phillips, who's um, the narrator, kind of co-lead too. Uh, I want to do some of that stuff we was doing with Michael Jackson. So I go in there, choreograph a scene. And while I'm there and I'm just hanging around, she's like, you know, why don't you, why don't you understudy for that, that narrator guy, right? And so he ended up getting sick a couple of days. I ended up doing the play a few times. Mm. And I get the show going. I, and so, that earns me another level of respect in her eyes. So we developed this relationship. I go back to business school. In between first and second year of business school, they have um, the uh, national, the, the, the black NBA conference mm -hmm. out in, in Anaheim, right? Which is basically LA. And you know, you're thinking you're gonna go out there, it's like, oh snap, all these educated black people, black men, you know, I'm gonna meet my wife. You know what I'm saying? You're like, Turn oh, up. Go, it's gonna be, a, gonna be crazy out here, right? But we get out there and I tell Claude, I'm like, yo, let's go check out Debbie. And Debbie's like, yeah, come by the house, boys. So we go by the house and she goes, you know what? I feel like my whole life is leading up to opening up a dance academy like I did in that show Fame. Um, I don't know how to write a business plan. And me and Claude look at each other, we're like, we write you a business plan. Mm -hmm. And so we go back to the hotel, we skip all the parties, don't meet my wife. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and we, we give her like a 30 page business plan after a couple of days fully bound, everything, financials, the whole thing. And she takes it and she goes and raises money from Denzel Washington, from Eddie Murphy, from William Morris, Betty uh, Group, uh, uh, Barry Gordy, and mm -hmm. all these people that are friends and wealthy friends. And she opens up, Steven Spielberg, she opens up the Debbie Allen Dance Academy, which is like the premier dance academy. So now fast forward to Houston. So a few years later, we're in Houston, we moving back to LA. And while we going to LA is my business partner, Claude's wife, uh, now wife, but then fiance, she was like, look, she was living in LA and she was like, look, I'm giving you a year to come out of here. If you're not having a year, I'm giving you back your rent. Right. Mm. So he's like, Reem, you gonna come? You know, I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> so no we choice. in a car 
right? With 11, with, with like two weeks left out of, out of that two years to get there. But at the same time, Debbie's like, I need another business plan. What y'all boys do? She ain't pay us for the first one, mind mm. you. So, but we stopping and you driving from Houston to LA, we stopping at Kinko's in every state, you know, Nevada. We trying to go to Vegas and hang out, but we in Kinko's in, in Las Vegas. And then we get to LA, we print it all out. And now we kind of salty. We walk up to her, we like, here you go, right? And she goes, you know what? Thank you. Mm. She's like, I know I didn't pay y'all for this, you know? And she's like, but you know what? Here's the dance academy. And in the back, there's a whole office that, that's unused. My husband Norman back there, but y'all can have it too. Mm. And when we go back there, there's two desks, two computers, phone lines, internet. She has like a machine that you could bind. Like the, mm. when we go to Kingo, she has that. Like, why is that, in a, why is that machine at a, a dance, dance academy? academy? And again, it was Providence. It was like, yo, this is the reason. And we just, we were in that place for, you know, and she was like, y'all can have this for as long as you want for free. Mm. And that was the blessing. That was worth more than any amount of money she could have paid us because we had an office, automatic day one, getting to LA. And we were like, all right, so what are we going to do? Now we got an office, what business are we going to do? And we, you know, I'm from, we all from the East. He's from DC, I'm from New York. And we, you think about LA as like sexy town, like it's, mm. like it's Baywatch, everybody walking around, bikinis downtown or something, right? So we had this office and but we did, we start, so we like, what are we going to do? We see all these overweight kids and we're like, well, we could do something about that. And I'm not even going to get into the story, but within two years from that point, we ended up starting a healthy vending machine company, ended up getting a law change in California, banning junk food in LA. And then we ended up getting a contract for every single public high school, middle school in LA. Mm -hmm. And that starts us on our health journey. Health journey and entrepreneurial journey. One of the things that you've done different than what many other entrepreneurs do is you guys did it using a search fund. I don't think a lot of people know what a search fund is. So can you talk about what a search fund is, how it works, and how it helps you buy the company that you now are a co-owner of? Right. So search fund is basically you raise some capital, you know, usually a million dollars from a bunch of different people, and you use that money to go find a company. Um, and we used that money and found Nature Aid. How many years did it take you to find Nature Aid? It took us like three or four years. Yeah, so like the million dollars is to pay for your salaries, it is to pay for trips while you're trying to explore. Um, so you use the million dollars literally just to find a company to buy. Right. Okay, then you find Nature Aid, then what happens? Then you find a company and now you go back to those same people. They have the first right to refuse to invest in that company. And most of those guys did, they invested in the company um, and in Grand Hill as well. And we ended up buying Nature Aid in 2012. And Nature Aid's been around since 1926, but our whole thing was, let's redirect its path. Like let's, now that it's black owned, let's make it really impactful for our community. And, you know, um, ever since I was a kid and, and, and both Claude and I were children, I, our grandparents' generation, they all died from, you know, stuff, you know, um, uh, um, complications due to diabetes, diabetes or high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. or, you know, these kind of things. It's all diet related. And so we were like, well, let's, you know, and then we, we, we realized we had two friends that had totally changed, totally gone vegan and reversed their type two diabetes from type two diabetes to healthy by just mm -hmm. going vegan. Mm -hmm. Now we know the majority of the population can't do that. And that's not even really what we try and get people to do. But we realized that if we can get people along that spectrum from vegan to carnival, if they can just get a little closer, right? We give you like a plant-based shake and you have it in the morning, and you still do your bacon cheeseburger at night, you will be healthier, mm. you know, especially if you do intermittent fasting from like maybe eat from 12 to eight and you have like a plant-based smoothie, clean, you know, with all the vitamins and minerals you need, 
uh, sometimes we have we have weight loss products as well. That's one of the Costco's that yeah. um, that you'll be healthier. We're just trying to get people to be healthier because that's attainable. Trying to get people to do this thing that we know they can't only five percent of the population can do. Mm. That's setting yourself up for failure. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba da ba ba ba. Now I'm glad that people can do it, but that's not the expectation. Mm-hmm. So we, we you know, Claude jokes that we we plant based for meat eaters, <laughs> right? People that want to be healthy, healthier, right? Movies like What the Help came out and exposed to people the dangers. Hundred million people saw that. My boy John Lewis, one of the uh, producers of that, right? And we're like, that's that was the one that made people say, you know what? Let me change my diet up a little bit and be a little bit more healthy. And it's really been an effective thing. You see Meatless Mondays mm. at like any rap restaurant you hear, rap, any restaurant you hear in a rap song, right? Like no Bruno, they got Meatless Mondays in LA. Mm. And I, I was like, oh snap, it's really, it's really happening. You know, it's just balance is what we're promoting. So you raised a million dollars to go search for a company. How much did you end up buying Nature Aid for? Can you talk about that publicly? No. Okay. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> but it was more than a million dollars. More than a million dollars. Yeah, okay. And then can you just talk to about like the success of Nature Aid? I know you guys have been on an incredible trajectory, specifically over the last couple of years. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you our, our latest major success, right? So, you know, Costco is the holy grail of distribution. Right. You get into Costco and you make it through all eight regions and then ask you, you are doing like 50 million in sales. Right. And so we, um, you know, we, one thing that Claude and I do is when we go to a to a city and or a company, we look at again, this is why you go to this place. He went to Wharton for, for his NBA, went to Duke undergrad. We go through the database and see who's working at these companies um, from Duke or Wharton. Mm. And then we reach out to them and. And the highest way. ranking person at, at Costco at Wharton was the CFO. So we get a meeting with him and he's like, look, I can't get you guys into anything. I can't make you do that, but I can assist. Let me see how I can help. Um, and we nurture a relationship with him over the, over four years. And finally, we're like, look, man, we need you to do one thing. We don't need you to invest in the company. We don't need we, we know you can't bend arms, but we want to meet the CEO of Costco. Mm. He sets up the meeting and we go there. And the CEO's like, you know what? I want more diversity. I believe in diversity. He's a, a great person, right? And we were like, man, look, you sound like a, a wonderful person. And I believe your heart is as big as you're saying. But really, there's a reason why you don't have, you only have a handful of black companies ever be in Costco's because you guys practice something that we call, you know, um, systemic bias. And it's not just Costco. Every, every company mm-hmm, does it. Mm-hmm. The problem is Costco is just bigger, right? And so... And we're like, he's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, if the average product in all stores is doing 50 million, how many, and, and you guys say you don't, you, you don't want to be more than 20% of a company's revenue. How many black owned companies are doing 250 million in revenues mm-hmm. such that they can qualify to be in Costco? Mm-hmm. Zero. You're never going to have a black owned company in here. And it's because of the good people sitting in this room and your policies. And he was like, you know, I never really thought about that. Mm-hmm. Like, what if we give you five stores? And I was like, all right, give us five stores. You know, put it in L.A., we'll put Magic Johnson on the radio, and we'll, we'll blow it out like that. So we wake up the next day, we get the email, we got 40 stores. Mm. We battle our way, now we're at 113. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> but the next thing, and this is, this is the most important part of the story. Mm. The next thing he says is, well, what else am I missing? You know, what else am I, we having this conversation. 
And Claude goes, well, you know, Costco does $200 billion a year in, in revenues. You know, you ever thought about putting some of that money in, you know, you, I'm sure you have some of it in savings account, getting like one, two percent. You ever thought about putting some of that in black banks? And he said, no, nah, do you know any? He said, yeah. Three weeks later, Costco put $25 million mm, to black banks love that it. we re referred. And then the final thing was, he said, all right, now this is, a kind of, this is what always happens to you. Now I'm interested in you guys. Like, how did you journey through your life, navigate through everything you went through to end up in my office? Inner City Education Program, Prepper Prep Lead Program. He said, I'm gonna do something that Costco's never done in the history of Costco. We're gonna give half of the profits of the sale of your products in Costco to inner city education programs of your choice, mm. right? And so you gotta remember, he gave us five stores then, right? So mm. I'm sure in his mind, it's like, that's a $10,000 check, $15,000 right, right. check. But I told you, we battled our way to 113. So last December, they wrote a $400,000, well, $197,000 each to both those organizations. Love it. Right? And that's the full circle moment for me. The, the organization that I credit with lifting me out of the path I was on, dropped me on another. I was able to full circle, mm -hmm. get them the biggest alumni generated donation in its history. Mm. You know, only because I was thinking about other things than myself. Claude was thinking about other things themselves in that moment. You know, as black people in those situations, and again, you have to be aware of the moment. This was, mm -hmm. this was my moment where the five is showing and I got two aces. I gotta split the aces. Mm. I gotta go for it. This is the moment. This is where you win, win it all or lose it all. And so, um, and that's and that's what happened. And that was, you know, that was that was the significance of that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I know we have to wrap things up, but um, a couple of things that I want to say in closing. Um, one, you talked about providence, right? And I think that's clear through your whole story and the timeline that you share. Um, I, I know I was speaking at times, like you know, talking about like me and my roommate having misdemeanors and felonies, but. The core piece was not to say that we had misdemeanors and felonies. The core piece was to say, if it wasn't for our tribe, if it wasn't for Kareem, who saved me, I'm not going to say who the other person was, but y'all also saved him. He was literally expelled from Duke, right? And y'all came in and, and saved the day. Um, he ended up being suspended, but he still was able to graduate with a Duke degree. Um, and so I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for um, the purpose that's on your life. I'm grateful that you are part of my tribe. I don't think I'd be here without you. And, um, and I'm grateful that you continue to live your life like that. The, the work you're doing in terms of what prep per prep is getting now because of the man that you are and the entrepreneur that you are. Um, and Claude is incredible. So I just want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being a part of my life. Thank you for being a part of my tribe. And thank you for making sure that I got to be here, which was Providence for me. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me here, man. Mm -hmm. And I hope that, you know, look, if I can just say this, we need the support, man. I mean, I don't, it's one of those things where, you know, It'll be written about later, and y'all read about it later. But what we're doing right now is 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 groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, we we would be the first if we can get into all eight regions. No black company's ever done that. Mm -hmm. But if everybody watching were to order the Nature Aid weight loss shake on Costco.com, go into the store, support these brothers. We don't know that people when people don't know they, that you need help, then they can't help you. And we need help. You know, we need the support because we're doing something that's impactful. Yeah, love it. Yeah, people are always asking me like how they can help. I'm always saying on the media side, it's like you got to vote with your eyeballs, right? So we need you watching our content, sharing our content. We need you supporting the brands that show up and support us. On your side, you're saying, look, we in Costco. We need you to go on Costco.com, go on to Costco and buy. Give us a five-star review. That, yeah. that matters. 
you know, people don't think about how that could sink or, or that could float or sink a company. Just a five-star review saying we love these guys. We want to see them everywhere, you know. All right, so Black Print family, please support my big brother. Thank you for being here, King. I appreciate you. Um, and that's this episode of The Black Print. Yo, incredible conversation with my big brother, Kareem Cook. Um, I'm so grateful that he took the time to be here. I think he dropped a lot of wisdom, but three things that resonate with me right now that I want to pull from that conversation. Um, one, he just talked about the power of providence, um, that things are to be, um, that, that God intervenes in our life in so many different ways. Um, and to be open and to be receptive and to be looking for those moments where God is showing up and connecting dots that we could have never connected ourselves. I think that was a beautiful thing. Two, as we talk about those moments, um, he spent a lot of his time talking about you got to be able to see those moments, identify those moments and seize those moments, right? There's this notion like, you know, we talk about carpe diem, seize the day. You never know when your, when your day is going to come. We, I think in the black community, we talk about like, if you always stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. And I think a lot of what he just talked about is like being ready so that when those providential moments show up, you are ready to jump in and get your moment and get your time and seize your opportunity, which I think was beautiful. And then the third thing he talked about that is super meaningful to me is he just talked about the power of the tribe, right? He tells a story where, you know, he's 15 years old, about to go, get, you know, do some knucklehead stuff and get in a fight, and it's his tribe, his village, um, that saves him. He talks about how he gets connected to Michael Jackson and becomes a choreographer um, for one of the greatest performers and entertainers of all time, and that's through the power of his tribe. And then what happens in our stories, you see, like, for me, you know, now people get to see that I'm lucky, I'm blessed, I'm fortunate um, to be the CEO of this really amazing company that we call Revolt. Um, but I probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the power of my tribe and him being a part of my tribe um, and making sure that they came in and rescued me from a moment that could have sent me down a very different path. And so, like, I love it all. I love the power of the moments. I love the power of providence being providential. I love the power of the tribe. I think he left us with three great lessons that we can all take away. Um, so thank you for Kareem Cook. Thank you for coming on the Black Print this season. Uh, off to the next one. Love.
Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before.